Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Hey, good morning, you guys. How are you doing? It's good to worship with you this morning. Good to be here. On Thanks for coming out on such a beautiful day. There's lots of places that you could be, the beach or the trees. Not to give you any ideas or anything, but here you are, uh, meeting together with other believers to celebrate Jesus and what he's doing in our lives, and that's, that's good. It's a good thing. Um, and there will still be plenty of day left after this, right? That's right. So um, if you came in and you're looking around, you're going, gosh, where are all the high school kids and the middle school kids and uh, leaders? Well, they are off at camp right now. They left for camp, including two of my kids, left on um, Friday. And uh, my ch- so I have a, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 10-year-old. And the 10-year-old's right over there. But the other two left for camp. And it was a, kind of a big deal for me as a dad, like watching two of my two oldest kids just like leave in the complete care of people that are not me, and, uh, you know, like, oh, man. But they're, they're at camp right now, and our, our prayer is that they're experiencing something of the Lord and, and um, also having a great time. But I thought, could we just take a minute? I mean, this is, like, I want to pray for my kids, <laughs> and the other kids, too. They're important also, but um, I, I, would you join me and just, let, let's pray for our kids, that they really um, experience something of God, and they hear His voice, and some, there's something about kind of getting away from everything and meeting God uh, in these what we call kind of mountaintop experiences that could be really life-changing. And I wouldn't want any one of those kids to miss out an opportunity for that. So will you join me in just, just lifting them up? Lord, we're uh, so grateful for the leaders that have uh, sacrificed and taken time and um, uh, taken time out of their week and their schedule to just be with these kids and minister to them and and make a place where they can meet with God and and worship him and come to understand him better. And I just pray that that would happen, that you would just speak to those kids and meet them right where they're at and love them and and that they would feel valued and loved and appreciated and, and that they would hear your voice and know that you are a living God and that you love them and keep them safe too. In Jesus' name, amen. It's 104 degrees up there right now where they are. Yeah. I, there's kids from all over California. Probably most of those kids are like, yeah, it's hot. Ca- Santa Cruz kids are like, we're dying, you know, <laughs> like so. <laughs> yeah, we're praying for them. So um, when I was 10 years old, uh, Ben's age right over there, my older sister uh, went away to camp. And um, she went away to church camp. And a couple of you have heard this story before. Forgive me if you have. But um, my older sister was a cheerleader at Monta Vista High School, and to raise funds, they used to do this. I don't think they do this anymore. I, if they do, I, I don't know about it. But, but um, they used to send kids home with a box, uh, just a giant box full of chocolate bars. Remember this? And they'd have to go and sell them door to door. This sounds crazy when you say it out loud now. Like that was a thing, like in the '80s, like knocking on doors, selling candy to raise funds for the cheerleading program. In this case, and. They gave my um, sister this great big box of all these beautiful chocolate bars, just like, you know, in this cardboard box. And then she she was supposed to sell them throughout the summer. She brought the box home and then immediately went off to camp. So she just slid it under her bed, fully expecting that her younger brothers would stay out of her room for a week. 
that's ridiculous, right? Of course, like I have two younger brothers. I need a place to just get away from, you know, the hustle and bustle of life. And that place was my older sister's bedroom when she wasn't around. Uh, she didn't know about it. But I'd go in there and I'd look at her Duran Duran poster on the wall and, you know, Oingo Boingo over here. And I just, you know, I'd lay against her little uh, pillow. And, and I just, you know, I started exploring one day and I, the d day after she left from camp and I looked under her bed and I saw this box. I was like, oh, what have we here? You know, and I opened it up and my little eyes saw... I mean, it must have been like 40 candy bars, right, in this box. And I told, you know, I, I pushed it back under there. I said, oh, those are, those are off limits, you know. By the mid-afternoon, I just was thinking about nothing but those candy bars. So I went in there, and I opened up the box, and I looked inside, and I thought to myself, there's a lot of candy bars in here. One is not going to go missed, right? I mean, one could just be easily explained as we just lost count, you know. And so I opened one up, and I had the candy bar. You know, uh, sometime before dinner, I, I told myself again, like, if one is not going to be missed, two, two will not be missed. I mean, two is close to one. It's like one with a buddy, you know? And I went back in there, and I ate another one. And then sometime before bed, I thought, you know, two plus three, that's just one more, you know? And the week went on like this till one day I woke up this morning. I, I woke up Friday morning, and my mom goes, Wendy's coming back from camp today. And I thought... I got to go check and see. And I opened the box, and I looked in the box, and there was like seven candy bars left. <laughs> the week had just gotten away from me. I don't know what happened. I just, it was like, I don't know what came over me. It's just like I kept telling myself, you know, one more will not be missed. And I looked, and all, all that was left was seven. I was like, what have I become? What's going to happen, you know? Have you ever uh, found yourself in a situation in life like that where you, you, you just... There's our, our, our ability, our, our capacity for self-delusion is just enormous. But then on the other side of it, you look back and go, what was I thinking? How could I have gotten here? We're going to see a moment like that in the life of David. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, then you know that we're in a series on the life of David uh, called Sustained. And David is a, he's a very uh, dramatic character um, in, in the Old Testament. He's a descendant of Jesus. Um, probably uh, largely thought of as the greatest king in the history of Israel. Um, and we're going to read today about uh, probably his worst moment. Um, so if you were here the last few weeks, you, you, know, you heard the story about how he was chosen by God to be the king. Um, he, he, uh, he killed a really tall guy. Um, he, uh, he faced you know, a giant and, and overcame that. And he, last week, Tim talked about how uh, it, he went through his life where he was... He was serving Saul, and he was fighting for Saul, and then he was running for his life from Saul. He faced all kinds of adversity, and he went through some real challenges. And so now where we pick up in the story today, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, feel free. We'll also have it up on the screen. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story jumps ahead into the future a little bit. This is 20 years later after uh, last week's message. This is 20 years later. Uh, Saul is, is, is dead, and, and David is now king. He's the second king in the history of Israel, and, and 20 years have gone by. And there's a, chapter 11 begins with a little information about a military conflict that was going on uh, between Israel and the Amorites. And these are a people that God had told Moses and Joshua, drive these people out, they're, they're, they will be a corrupting influence um, to Israel if you don't. And you know what? They didn't, and they were. And so here we pick up in chapter 11 uh, of 2 Samuel in verse 1, and it says this. 
It says, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. That was the capital uh, for the Ammonites. But David remained at Jerusalem. So Joab, who was David's nephew, went out and led the people to war. Do you rem- so if you were paying attention last week, David was a fearsome warrior. It was his job to lead the army. But 20 years have gone by, and things have happened. And David has settled in to a very sedentary life, right? Um, he's basically retired from all the things that God has called him to. And he's sitting at home. He stayed home, and he's sending out his family members to go and do what, what God has asked of him. Um, you know, my, my dad is in his 70s now. He'll, I think he's 76. Um, and when my dad retired from the railroad, he worked as an engineer for the railroad for years. Years, and, years ago, he retired from the railroad, and many of the guys that he worked with that were on his crew that came up around the same time that had retired right before him or right after him, um, they went home and sat on the couch and watched television and died. That's a common story. Uh, you know, for baby boomers, you hear this a lot. There's, this is a very common story. Um, they, they, their purpose was their job, so when it was over, they went home and, and they died. And my dad did not do that. He found new purpose and new life, and he kept going, and his purpose was not in his job, and he's still, he's one of the healthiest guys I know. He can, you know, when we go backpacking, he still beats me up the mountain, you know, because he's healthy, and he has purpose, and there's something, there's a principle here, and I think uh, for us as followers of Jesus, it's easy to reach a point in our life where we've, we've lived some life, we've seen some things, and, you know, there's a new generation coming up, and it's, and there's, there's some of us that have have kind of taken a little bit of a back seat and have stepped back. You know, my, I, here's my role. Here's my role. I feel like this is what God has called me to do, is to be an equipper of the saints, is to teach scripture and facilitate worship and, and help equip saints for the work of the ministry, for the work of the ministry. That means that, that our calling together as believers is the work of the ministry. There's no retirement from the kingdom of God is what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. There's no retirement. If you've slowed down a little bit, if you've taken a back seat and said, maybe I'll just let others go, it's time to get back in the game. We need you, okay? That's what I'm saying. All right, let's keep going. So this is, I just read to you the first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and what I'm, we're going we're gonna to read the middle part in a second, but I'm going to jump to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 12, and the reason I'm going to do that is it tells the end of this story, and I didn't want you to miss it. So remember, Joab goes, he leads the army off to war, and David stays home, right? That's where we're at. So check out what happens in chapter 12, verse 26. It says, now Joab fought against Rabah, okay, that's the capital city, and the people of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah, and I have taken the city's water supply. This is a crucial strategic move. He had isolated the the city's water supply, and what's not said is that he'd shut it off. So now the people of Rabbah, they only have about three days, okay? So victory is in hand. And he says, now therefore gather the rest of the people, this is what he's imploring David to do, together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take it and, be, and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold with precious jewels, and it was on David's head. And he brought out the spoils of the city in great abundance. 
and he brought out the people who were in it. So what happened here? Basically what happened is that Joab had been doing the work of David all the way up into the point where there was this victory in hand, something that Israel had been trying to accomplish for, for, for hundreds of years, in fact. And he, he puts it on a tee and he tells David, come out of retirement and just knock this thing out of the park. I think a lot of times when we read stories about these, these well-known biblical patriarchs like, like David, we're looking for, how am I like David, for better or worse? But, but I think in this story, we should ask ourselves, can we be more like Joab, who knew better than to take glory that was meant for the king? You know, we, we, it is our, our sacred design to reflect glory back to the king at every opportunity. Look what he's done in our lives. Look what he's done. Let's be like Joab. All right, so something happens between these two bookends that I just read for you. Something happens. What happens? Now, if you, if you, read, uh, if you, if you read the Old Testament, you know that First uh, and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, they cover a lot of the same territory. You, you read things, and then you read them again from a different perspective. If you were reading Chronicles, you would never know about the part that I'm about to tell you about. You would have just read these two bookends, like David and Joab took the Amorites, and they they conquered that city. But something happened very, very personal in between. And, and we know about it because Nathan gave the story to Samuel and Samuel wrote it down. And so we're going to read that part right now. Life is about to get very complicated for David. I, I, I want to show you a picture real quick before I read this because it helps to understand the, the mechanics of the story to get a visual. So I want to show you this first image. This is just an artist's rendering of the city of David. So they're in Jerusalem, right? But Jerusalem's had several different iterations and sizes and shapes. So there's, a, there's an image that's on its way. It's coming up any second now um, of Jerusalem. And it shows the palace. And it show, I'm just going to have to describe it for you, I think. It shows the, the palace. And, and what, what I wanted you to see is that the city of David was, was actually very small. It's, so you have a sense of like the size of the, the valley that we're in here in Soquel, right? Soquel Drive. And then there's some hills up here. There's some low hills right here, right? That's about the size of, of the city of David, all right? Except it's inverted. It's a hill, not a valley, okay? And what you have is you have a palace at the top, and you have some maybe about uh, 50 to 75 dwelling units, and it's surrounded by a city. And that, that was Jerusalem. That was the city of David. And, and at the beginning of our story, what happens is David comes out. He's walking the palace at night, and he sees a person, all right? We're going to read about it, but I just want you to have that visual, so... I guess you'll have to imagine it. So there it is. All right, so beginning in verse 2, this is what happens in 2 Samuel, okay? It says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. By the way, this story is, it's, I'd say it's about PG-13, so just, just FYI. Just wanted to give you that heads up. So he sees a woman uh, bathing, and from the, uh, she was very beautiful, to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, what's interesting about the story, he sent, remember he sent Joab, his nephew, out to do his work, and now he's napping in the late afternoon. So it's about dinner time, and he's asleep. That kind of tells you everything about his lifestyle that we need to know, right? Who sleeps at dinner time? And he gets up in the evening, he's walking, and he's, he basically peeks in on a rooftop and sees uh, a woman bathing. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, 
for she was cleansed from her impurity. So, in other words, she was not currently on her menstrual cycle, and they, they got together in the king's house. And she returned to her house, and of course, the timing was terrible, and she conceived. She got pregnant. So, so she sent word and told David and said, I am with child. And then David panicked, and he sent to Joab. Remember, Joab's off at war with his army. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now, it doesn't say this here, but we know from earlier in the story that Uriah is one of David's mighty men. Uh, there was 37 of them, I believe. These were like elite warriors. They'd be like the Navy SEALs of the Is Israelite army, right? Trained, they came up together, they fought together. He, this is a friend. He knows this man. And he just, he just um, had adultery with his wife and got her pregnant. So he sends for Uriah, the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. So he's making small talk. How's it going? How's it going, buddy? How are things with the battle and such? And David said to Uriah, well, um, I've got an idea. Why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? And in other words, make yourself at home. You see where this is going, right? You see what he's trying to do? He wants, he pulled Uriah home hoping that he uh, would... Uh, be with his wife so that the pregnancy would be thought of as Uriah's, right? It's crafty. It's crafty. It gets worse. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. So he sent him with a bunch of food, probably some aphrodisiacs, maybe some chocolate, I would imagine. Um, and Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, in other words, David's plan is falling apart, right? He needs these two to get together for this to work. David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, listen to this, this is kind of heartbreaking. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, because they used to take the ark of the covenant out with them into battle. He said, they're dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. In other words, all of my friends are sleeping out in the open, the implication being, and you, King David, are here in the palace, right? He says, shall I go to my house to eat and drink and lay with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This is the kind of tenacity, this, this is the kind of friendship he had with David that he could refuse the king and say, I'm not doing what you said. It's, it's too dishonorable. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. In other words, he's trying to still generate this thing to happen. Here's the deal. There was a tradition among the elite warriors of David in that day that a man would abstain from, from sex and from rich food and from drink while he was serving in combat. It helped him focus, and it was, they thought of it as greatly honorable. And this man was an honorable man. And he said, I will not partake in these things while my friends are sleeping in the open field. David had forgotten the traditions that had made him who he was. You know, we, we live in a culture where it, it, it's our, we, we are violently upending traditions that make us who we are. We think of it as a virtue, you know, deconstructing everything and taking everything apart. And I, I think it is good to progress. It is good to grow and to learn and put away things that have no value. But when you violently upend everything and you forget who you are, 
you forget where you came from and you forget the things that God has built in you to make you who you are, that is a dangerous place to be in. And it's just a reminder to us of what David had become. So look what happens. It says, So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. He kept, I don't, I don't know how he tricked him into drinking, but he, he kept uh, trying to generate this, this cover for his, his mistake and his sin. At evening, he went to lie, out to lie down in the bed uh, with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So it didn't work. David's plan fa- uh, failed. Right? In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now, now check this out. This is, this is horrible, what happens. He writes this letter, and then he gives it to the man to carry. He gives it to Uriah to carry to Joab. This is what, this is what the, the letter says. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and then retreat from him, abandon him, that he may be struck down and die. Imagine you're Joab and you're reading this letter. What is happening? Like, are, are things this fractured? Right? Has my king fallen this far? So it was, while Joab besieged the city, he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite did also. So Uriah is murdered. Then Joab sent and told David all these things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying this, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, in other words, if it happens that David's upset by the news, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the walls? Tell him this. Listen to, listen to Joab. This is, some, this is some very clever wording from Joab. He says, Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerobasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone from him on the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah, is, the Hittite, is also dead. Okay, who the heck is Abimelech? What is happening here, right? That's a lot of names right in a row. Here's what's happening. Joab is writing back to David, and he's his friend. He's now a party to David's murder, right, and helping cover it up. And Joab invokes this story about someone named Abimelech. Now, if you read back, you know that Abimelech is actually the son of Gideon. Okay? Abimelech was one of the sons of Gideon. And after Gideon died, Abimelech took power. But he took that power by killing all of his brothers. All of the people that, check this out, all of the people that helped him gain power, Abimelech betrayed those people. And then when there was an uprising, he led his people against some the revolt, and there was, there was some people in a tower, and Abimelech was going to set fire to the tower, and a woman threw a rock down and hit him in the head, and he didn't want to die from that, so he asked his servant to kill him with a sword so he didn't have to die with the shame of being hit in the head with a rock by a woman, which is a shameful way to go. I, I grant that. Not good. Look at what Joab is doing. He's invoking this story through a messenger to David. Think of this person who betrayed the people that helped him get to where he got and murdered them. And he did it in such a clever way, right? Could it be that Joab is trying to warn David? He's trying to throw him a lifeline. I, here's the thing. I, I said earlier, our capacity for self-deception is enormous. We should always be cultivating the kind of friendships and relationships where people can, can text us or call us and say, hey, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that thing, right? I just want to call this out. We need to have those kind of relationships because otherwise... 
Look how far we can fall without them, right? Okay, check out what happens. It says, and the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us. So he gives him the news. And David said to the messenger, thus you shall tell Joab, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Strengthen your attack and take the city. And this passage ends and it says, it says that uh, David brought, he says, when the wife of Uriah heard the news that she was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent her, brought her into his house. She became his wife and bore him the son. And listen to the last line of the passage. It says, but the thing that David had done, uh, but the thing that David had done was displeased the Lord. That word displeased is a Hebrew word, weyara, which means to, when you see something abhorrent and you're grieved over it. And that's, that should be our, our reaction when we hear this story. This is awful. Have you ever heard a story about someone that you really greatly respected or admired or looked up to, and then you hear a story about something terrible that they did? And it just, it just grieves you, right? That, that's how we should react to this story. When my wife Amy and I uh, first got married, we, uh, we lived apart when we were dating and when we were engaged, uh, but I rented us an apartment to move into after we married. And so neither of us had ever stayed in this apartment. I rented it for one month before our wedding. And the plan was when we came back from our honeymoon, we would move in. And um, before, uh, a couple days before the wedding, I moved some of our belongings into the, the place in anticipation of us coming back. And I remember when I brought some stuff in, I remember seeing along the, so this place was up Old San Jose Road. It was, at, it was like a little uh, cottage on a property, someone's house, and it was under these redwood trees. Very uh, damp and moist, very shadowed, you know, and I, very cool. And I went in there, and I, I noticed there was some mold along the baseboards. I had never lived under redwoods before, and I didn't, I didn't know about this. There was some mold along the baseboards. But I just put our stuff in there, and I thought, well, we'll clean that when we get back, you know. And we got married. We went on our honeymoon, and we came back. And when we came back to the, this little cottage, we, we opened the door, and this black mold had gone everywhere. It just climbed the walls. It was on the windowsills. It was everywhere. We had it tested. It turned out to be really dangerous. We never actually even lived in this apartment. We never stayed one night in this, this place that I had rented. We couldn't stay there. It was totally just infested with this black mold. I even remember the name. It was called Stachybotrys. It's actually really dangerous. It's really uh, harmful for your health. And I think oftentimes we think of uh, sin in our life as a lion that just comes roaring in that we can defend against, more often than not, it's like a little creeping mold that comes in. And at first you go, that's fine, I'll take care of that later. That's fine, I'll, I'll deal with that later. And then all of a sudden, it's just infested everything. And this is, this is what we see in this story of, of, of David. The, the word, you know, when I use that word sin, I, um, you know, I know for us as Western thinkers, it kind of conjures up this list of items, Right? Items that should be or are off limits. I, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. Uh, sins, right? And, and if I see myself do that, I, I feel guilty. Or if I see others do that, I judge them. This is not the Hebrew understanding of the word sin. The, the Hebrew word sin is kata. It means something that, has be, that was meant for a purpose but has become broken or bent. It's like if, you're, if your neighbor and yourself, you have a property line and you, you decide together to partner and build a, a fence, a rock wall, and you started building from your end and he started building for your, from your end and, and you, you were going to meet in the middle and, and as you got closer, you realized you're like three feet off of each other, you know, after putting all this work in, you're like, oh, you'd say, this is kata. This is, this is not what we intended. That's, that's what sin is. 
There's two very human reactions, I think, to hearing a story like this where there's so much brokenness, so far astray from what God intended. The first is self-righteousness. This is what I'm guilty of. I'm just, just, I'm just being honest. This is the first human reaction to hearing a story like this is something like this. Well, at least I'm not like David. This is self-righteousness. I've never murdered anybody. I'm not saying that rhetorically. I've never murdered anyone. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've wondered, but I've never arranged for someone's murder. I've never committed adultery, right? So it's easy for me to see a story like that and go, oh, that's so heinous. But I've never done anything like that, right? That's self-righteousness. But the New Testament does away with that when it says, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all. So I'm in the same camp with David, with my sin, with my mistakes. And the second human reaction to a story like this is self-pity. We see this story and we go, oh, you don't know what I've done. You don't understand how far I've fallen. Oh, I'm worse than, I'm worse than David. Because here's, here's what we do as human beings. We, we either disqualify, disqualify ourselves from receiving his conviction and correction, or we disqualify ourselves from receiving his grace. Either way, we put the barrier up between us and God. And that's a tragedy. And this story is there to remind us of that. It is a tragedy. In fact, buckle up, because I'm going to read you the last little portion from chapter 12. And it gets, you think it's bad now? It gets so much worse. The story is a tragedy. It's, I'm just going to tell you, I want to prepare you. It, there's not a happy ending. It ends badly. Like it's, it's bad now. It ends worse. All right? I know you were hoping to come here and be cheered up, but it's not, that's not happening. It's, it's, it's bad. It's just all bad. So check this out. This is what, so chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's how we know this story. Nathan wrote it down, right? And Nathan went to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, he said, David, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate his own food and drank from his cup. It slept in his bed, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and his own herd to prepare for this traveling man and, and who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb instead and slaughtered it and prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's a good story. This is a good prophet. He's a good prophet. He knows what he's doing. And David becomes enraged. He says, he becomes enraged about this man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. We should be careful when we get upset when we hear stories like this, right? And, the, and he shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Not, you're the man. It's, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Look what I've done in your life that has led up into here. And, and look what you've reflected back at me, right? I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your keeping, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Check that out. Think about the 20 years where David was basically sitting on his hands 
And David said, if you had asked more of me during that time, I would have given it to you. What have we missed out on in our lives? Because we've just reached a point where we just plain sat down and stopped seeking God. What a tragedy that would be. He says, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And you've taken his, his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him with the sword because of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because this is heavy, you guys. He says, you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Behold, I will raise up. You're, you notice the Lord just keeps referring to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah. Because that, that was the intention. That's what God had ordained. And David broke that thing. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan, Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you've been given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Check that out. Because of this, you've given great opportunity for the enemies of God to look unfavorably on this whole thing. We are ambassadors, representatives of the person of Jesus. So when we don't follow in the way of Jesus, we're giving opportunity for people to look on this thing this thing called the kingdom of God and see it unfavorably and see it in a wrong light. He said, because of this, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. That is really heavy, right? What a heavy punishment that David had to suffer. But this tells us a couple things. It tells us that our past victories, our past successes will not prevent problems in our present and future. And, and also, though, our past failure does not prevent future victories. We're more than the sum total of the things that we've done. It's true that David experienced consequences, but they were not the end of his story. His story goes on. In fact, this is, this is kind of the big idea I wanted to leave with you today as we're kind of wrapping up, is this right here, that God, he wants to redeem your past. He wants to redeem your past, but he also wants to reshape your present. It's, he is the king, and he wants to decide what your present looks like. And then he wants to help you to reimagine your future. When you picture the, the future of your life, when you picture the things that you're going to continue to do and the new things that you're going to do and be a part of, what do you imagine? He'd like to help you reimagine what that looks like. Remember I was talking about the two reactions of this story, right? There's the people that they exclude themselves through self-righteousness and the people that exclude themselves through self-pity. God doesn't want either of those things for you or for me. Look at what David did. He brought his sin before the Lord. He said, I am a sinner, and he repented. Now, this brings up a really profound theological question, which is, does God... Does God punish us? Does God punish sin? Does he punish sin in this life? I mean, we know that there's a, there's a judgment and there's an afterlife, but he, does he punish sin in this life? 
The answer is unequivocally yes. David experienced the punishment of God. What about for us as modern believers? If you think about the sum total of all the ways that you've participated in kata, right? Mistakes and sin. Is God waiting to crush you and punish you and make sure you experience every consequence for that sin? Here's the thing. I would say the answer is yes, but he's already done it. He's already punished the sin. He did it at the cross. Someone has already experienced all of the retribution and the judgment of God for all of the things that you've participated in and I've participated in. All those candy bars I stole from my sister and ate, right? All of the ways that we have made mistakes that have led us away from the design that God intended for human beings. All of that judgment had to go somewhere, and it did. It went onto the shoulders of Jesus on the cross, and he paid the price that we could never afford to pay ourselves. And listen what David says in response to the reality of this. In Psalms chapter 32, he said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. This is a thousand years before Jesus. He didn't even know what this would look like, but he looked forward prophetically and anticipated this blessing. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in his spirit is no deceit. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you, and you did not cover up my iniquity, and I will confess my transgressions. This is, so God has already delivered the judgment for our sin. It's now up to us to just come before him and confess. And it's to live in transparency with our God. That's all that's left for us to do. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.